welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. Pause for oh. mailbag. <laughs> you want to do it again or are you going to no, leave that No, no. You oh, know what? You, you have to live with that now. It's a mailbag. There, I did it for you, Brenna. I was I was distracted by looking through the mail email we're going to talk about today and not listening to you at all. Sorry. Sorry, wow. sorry, sorry. Best <laughs> podcasting partner ever. I know. You're living the dream, Joe. Oh, boy. Yeah. So uh, this week, Miriam wrote in with a gentle correction mm-hmm. and entered into some more thoughts about translation, particularly from the experience of being an author. So I'm actually very excited to dig into this one. So I did misspeak when I said that Miriam was unable to read Apple because it hadn't been translated. It turns out it's just not even available mm-hmm. at all. So, okay. Yeah. And Miriam points out that the more we focus on sort of smaller own voices kinds of markets, um, the less likely it is that that she's going to get copies, which is something, you know, we've talked about on the show. Like, how do you how do you make sure that the kind of diversity we want to see in publishing is also reflected in the world of translation, right? And mm-hmm. Miriam goes on to say, um, because I'm an author, I know a little bit about why books do or do not get translated into Dutch. And I'm happy to explain a little bit about that. So the books that do get translated, bestsellers. Ding. <laughs> Ding. A book that's a big success in the States or the UK will get a translation. Sometimes immediately, sometimes when the movie comes out, if there is one. When a book is a series and the first book was successful, the next books will get translations that will be released on the American or the UK date. So I found that really interesting. Well, and it does make sense, yeah. right? I mean, if something is popular in other countries and they think that they can make a profit off of it, it it makes sense. I don't like it, but it makes sense. But the next part of Miriam's email is wild. Also, at a publishing house, there will be one person whose job it is to decide which books get translated. If that oh person boy. doesn't like the book, it doesn't get a translation. It's as simple as that. Joe, when I tell you, I screamed. <laughs> I was flabbergasted. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. That is wild. So Miriam gives the example of Red, White, and Royal Blue, which of course was a huge book, I guess, last summer. Um, Mm. She said, it took a while to get translated over here. I asked my publisher why. Turns out she didn't like the book. (laughs) That is, oh boy, that is such a subjective reason not to give something a translation. And that book was huge. Like that book is about to be turned into a movie and it already has a sequel in the works because it was massive. Yeah. It's wild. And then Miriam goes on to confirm something that we've been wondering about. Sometimes a book that no one has ever heard of will get translated just because that person liked it. But basically, it's a lottery based on personal taste, which means that queer books, books by black authors, books by disabled or neurodiverse authors, etc. rarely make the cut. Mm-hmm. Boo. Yeah. I mean, we kind of got that that was what was happening. But having it confirmed is a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, big time. As I've said, it's not shocking, but it is disappointing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. So, Miriam, thank you so much for writing in with that perspective, because obviously it's not a perspective that we have, both the insider perspective that you have as a writer who is, you know, actively re- working with publishers and having that relationship, and also the perspective of what that looks like for someone who who wants to read books in Dutch. Mm-hmm. Miriam does point out that she's lucky enough to be able to read in three languages. And so there are way more books available to her than others. Um, But she notes that it's really important that Dutch publishing get more diverse because there are lots of people who only read Dutch. Mm -hmm. 
I wonder if before we close, we can touch on one other part of yeah. this email, which is in the Netherlands, our literary education is mainly focused on Dutch literature, which mm. is probably not a huge surprise, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we sent out the call to ask listeners, particularly in foreign countries, to tell us like, who are your big people? You know, who kind of gets pushed on you as part of the cultural canon? Joe. And <laughs> Joe. Yes. They're not foreign countries. Foreign countries. <laughs> Foreign just countries not to us. Canada or America. Yes. <laughs> I'm xenophobic. <laughs> okay, in, in non North American countries. How's mm -hmm. that? Yes, thank you. <laughs> so Miriam says in Dutch class, you're not allowed to read translations. You have to read books by Dutch authors. Mm -hmm. Does this sound similar to what we do in Canada? Well, my mm, I was like, I wish we did that in Canada. Like I I don't know if it's different now, and I guess I'll find out as my kiddo starts to move through the school system, but like, I didn't read any books by Canadian authors until like, I remember the they university? made us ring, no, they made us read um, The Stone Angel in grade 10. Oh, uh, okay. And it was mm -hmm. the first and only Canadian book I had read in school. Thankfully, my mom was a big Canlit geek, and I had worked through her book collection, but like, mm. the number of people in my class who were like, wow, Canadian books suck not because <laughs> so the stone boring angel so sucks. slow <laughs> not because the stone angel sucks everybody but because maybe the best book in margaret lawrence's canon to give to 13 and 14 year olds is not mm -hmm. the one that's about the old lady dying on the beach for yeah. 300 pages <laughs> just a thought admittedly a great book though <laughs> it is a beautiful book it's just that you're pitching it to the wrong crew at that point right mm -hmm. um and so I was really, I was sort of stunned by the idea of like having a literary education actually rooted in literature of the place that you live. What a concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting, actually, because it does bring me back to part of what Tea Books and Chocolate wrote in when she was talking about the most recent book club, Apple, where uh, one of the things that she talked about is what it means to teach more books by BIPOC, queer, disabled, mm. etc. authors in school. Because Miriam clarifies that in addition to reading almost exclusively Dutch authors in Dutch, that the other sort of people that they would read were authors from the uk and mm -hmm. then like jd salinger and mm -hmm. so like there's certain classics that we do see that kind of get shifted around the globe and yet i think so often what we're acknowledging is that those are often like old white men yeah and I, I just wonder in terms of like a social justice movement which is what tea books and chocolate is interested in is like what does this do to young readers when they either have to read something that's not really meant for them, like the Stone Angel, mm -hmm. or these old white male texts that, you know, don't feature any of the kind of like more diverse stories? I do think both Tea Books and Chocolate and Miriam say, you know, we're sort of getting there, like those walls are sort of falling down and we're engaging more with different types of authors. But I just think of like the number of people that I know who don't read because... Mm -hmm the quote-unquote canon that they were forced to consume in high school turned them off so badly from yeah. reading. Yeah, there's so many of those stories, right? There's so many of those experiences where people just felt so alienated from the idea of reading at such a young age. And I just think, I don't know, that's 
that sucks because <laughs> reading is the kind of thing that can really see you through difficult times. It's a place where you can go to get experiences that reflect, you know, difficult times that you're living through. Like we all know, everybody who listens to this show knows my books are good. But like <laughs> the idea that people feel so alienated from that experience so young, I think I think that's genuinely tragic. And I think that an education system that is doing that um, is failing. Like really, mm -hmm. genu genuinely, I don't mean everybody has to be like a big reader and love it. That's not everybody's experience and not everybody likes the same things. It's fine. But I do think it's alarming that so many people feel so alienated from the experience of reading. Mm-hmm. So what then about the flip side of what Tea Books and Chocolate says? Because I'm reading the rest of the paragraph mm. and she goes on to talk about discussions of intersectionality and social justice and whether teachers would have even been able to handle negotiating, raising discussion, doing talking points about some of these diverse texts that we're now looking to get into the hands of young people. Like, is there a danger then that teachers in Tea Books and Chocolate Words says, butcher, tokenize, misinterpret, or mm -hmm. create learning environments that don't actually do credit to the books? I don't want to say it's worse that they get taught badly than they not get taught at all, but you do a tremendous amount of damage when you teach a book like this badly. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a real, that's a real concern. Um, and so, you know, there's a tremendous amount of teacher education that needs to happen. There's also the value of just having these books accessible to students. And right. the tragedy mm -hmm. of what we're seeing unfold in the US, right, is not just mm -hmm. that these books are being taken off curriculum, but they're being removed from like school libraries, places where kids discover books that they need to have. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think in that email, Tea Books and Chocolate also makes a really interesting observation of kind of the other side of that argument, which is that there is a limit to how much empathy can inform social justice, right? Like, hmm. it's important to not move through life believing that only the experiences that you can understand or relate to are right. worthy, right? And Tea Books and Chocolate talks about this in relation to Apple and, and having to stop herself from seeing Gansworth's experiences as parallel to her own family's experiences in losing the Yiddish language. So she's thinking about it in terms of sort of this language piece. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a part where empathy helps us to connect with the stories of other people, but we also need to recognize difference, right? There's significant mm -hmm. difference in that history, but also the fact that like, I, I worry sometimes this relatability piece that we see mm. in YA conversations, like people are still human beings, even if you don't relate to them, right? And so yeah. there's always that concern about like, to what extent do we lean too hard on relatability when what we really want to be talking about is the actuality of like rights and justice? And that's, I think... I think we are entering a political climate where talking about rights and justice is super scary for a lot of teachers. <laughs> yeah. And so relatability is safer. But I, I think, mm. you know, Tea Books and Chocolate is really reflecting on what we might lose when we go down that road too far. Yeah. And actually something I'm going to kick back to listeners just because I feel like it's beholden to a lot of the conversations we've had over the last like four and a half to five years of doing this podcast is... To what extent do things like relatability or likability 
play into the way that we have conversations specifically about YA text. Okay. And I, I raise that because I think of the number of conversations we've had where books that feature quote unquote unlikable mm-hmm. young female protagonists mm-hmm. are suddenly demonized or categorized as not very good books or mm-hmm. mm, I just didn't like it because I didn't like her. Mm-hmm. To me, likability is a slippery slope to relatability and vice versa. Yeah, I I don't disagree with you at all. And I I fall into that trap, right? Because oftentimes when we want to read a pleasurable text, we Mm -hmm. are looking for a level of relatability, right? Right. But yeah, you're right. It's it's a big problem if we can't – if we're not using literature to see other experiences – um, if we only want to see reflected back to us what is comfortable, that's mm-hmm. that's no good either. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I want recommendations of books where you're like, I don't relate to this person and or I don't like this person. And I still found it either incredibly rewarding or important or valuable or something like that. Well, you are making me watch that kitty spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brenna, <laughs> I got you good. 